welcome back to Round 12, the podcast that will always be dedicated to growth, development, and motivational mastery. I am your host, Sensei Roger B. Hamilton. Thank you for joining us again today for another episode of the Round 12 podcast series. Let's go get it. Make me want to holler and throw up both my hands. number one, of the black man in America is beyond America's ability to solve. It's a human problem, not an American problem or a Negro problem. And as a human problem or a world problem, we feel that it should be taken out of the jurisdiction of the United States government and the United States courts and taken into the United Nations in the same manner that the problems of the black man in South Africa, Angola, and other parts of the world, and even the way they're trying to bring the problems of the Jews in Russia into the United Nations because of violation of human rights. We believe that our problem is one not a violation of civil rights, but a violation of human rights. Not only are we denied the right to be a citizen in the United States, we're denied the right to be a human being.
everybody thinks we're wrong But a mother Who are they to judge us? Mother, mother Simply call me sweet Where I hell on Mother, mother Black working man, uncle and nephew flashback. It's July of 1967 on a central New Jersey street. It's the middle of the day in the back of a delivery truck. Roger's 12 years old now and has developed into a sturdy, strong, proud young teenager who loves sports and is a continuous student of the challenging times. The uncle and nephew stand in the truck cargo area. Uncle Henry speaks. All right, boy, you better catch this case when I throw it to you now. Let's get moving. We're going to be behind if we don't get this stop finished quick. I don't want to be messing around here today. Roger answers in a slightly exasperated tone. Okay, uncle, I got it. Henry answers back. Boy, who you think you talking to? Don't get sporty now. Roger's eyes point downward, knowing that his uncle is a serious man and that his very life depends on how efficiently he works for his living and is never the object of his employer's disdain. They load the individual hand trucks and roll the cargo inside the store, then place the cases neatly in the aisle. They quickly head back to the truck, toss the hand trucks inside, flip them over so they won't roll in transit, and Roger pulls the rolling door downward and latches it shut. The two have finished the delivery stop. They both, from either side, climb up into Henry's delivery truck cabin. The doors close, and Henry, from the driver's seat, looks at Roger to make his version of a strong speech. Boy, let me tell you something. You're going to have to work for a living your whole life, and ain't no boss going to have you if you don't know how to do your business. Now, if you want to stay home with the girls and do what they do, then you can do that. But if you're going to come out here with me, then you better know how to work. If you're going to work, work. If you're going to bullshit, bullshit. But if you're going to bullshit, stay home. You hear me, boy? If you're going to do a job, do it right. Roger answers with resolve. Yeah, I got it, Unc. I got it. All right, then. Let's get the hell out of here. Henry starts his delivery truck and the two drive forward, headed to their next delivery stop. The sun is still beaming on this summer afternoon. Roger has accepted the present need to know and how to grow up quickly. He looks downward as the truck rumbles forward. In his hand is a copy of Life magazine. He's reading as they drive to the next stop. Cover story. Newark. The predictable insurrection. Subtext. Wounded by gunshot. Joe Bass Jr., 12 years old, lies in a Newark street. The article reads, 
the Vietnam War, and the racial violence that is erupting around the country now dominate the nation's airways. Each day, the TV news presents aggressive examples of yelling, violence, and the continuous body counts from the war. Busing black children to formerly predominant white schools has become a new method of balancing the scale for communities that have formerly been absent of progression and equality. That was 1967. And now, here in 2020, here's a thought for us all to consider. Your black colleagues may look like they're okay, but chances are they're not. Let's cut right to the chase here. It's been a tough few days, weeks, and months. For many people, working in the midst of a global pandemic has been difficult. For those of us fortunate enough to continue our job safely at home, we've had to somehow make ourselves look presentable for nonstop digital meetings and had to learn how to be productive as the lines between our personal and professional lives continue to blur. We've run out of shows to stream, Instagram lives to watch, and things to bake. We're confused or scared, and we don't know when any of this will be over. But there's a tale of two quarantines. Because while some Americans have been consumed by banana bread, others have had to navigate surviving a pandemic in a country they were never actually meant to live in. What an awful statement of truth. Over the last few months, many black people have not only watched their friends and family members die at higher rates from the coronavirus, they've also watched people who look like them be gunned down while going for a job, be murdered in their homes, threatened while birdwatching in Central Park and mercilessly choked on camera. And while this is an issue I don't generally wear on my sleeve anymore, it's important to pause this time. Every day, we have awakened and answered the emails and gotten on the Zoom calls. We showed up with a smile and put the pain and fear behind us. We've swallowed the rage while responding to our bosses and offered the assistance and worked twice as hard for half as much sometimes because that's all we know how to do. But here's a news flash for all the white people unaware of this fact. Your black colleagues may seem okay right now, but chances are they're not. Trust me, I know what I'm talking about. The likelihood that some of your black colleagues lost a family member to COVID-19 is painfully high. The chances that your black colleagues was emotionally triggered by the viral video of Amy Cooper because a white woman used her race and privilege and weaponized it against him is incredibly likely. The possibility that your black colleague is more afraid to go for a run or terrified when her husband or son leaves the house or just simply enraged by the absence of truth as this country keeps telling us about equal liberties is so high you'll need a ladder to get it down. And yet, as your subordinate, she's responded to your passive aggressive email and he smiled through your condescending questioning or even just found the strength to peel themselves out of bed and simply show up. Every day, black people take the personal trauma we all know to be true and tuck it away to protect white people who are ignorant to the fact that it's nearly impossible to keep going when our grandma won't survive coronavirus because she has serious pre-existing conditions. It's hard to be your best self at work when we watch white women feign terror on the phone with authorities that will arrive at the scene and kill the black man she called the cops on. 
It's even harder when you watch those cops kill that black man on video, and sometimes the killers aren't even cops. But we show up for work anyway, and we contain our rage, tears, fear, and sadness. We call each other and lament on the phone. We write to each other in group chats. We send each other articles that articulate our feelings. We post and repost and retweet on social media, but we don't take our pain to work. We know better. So while you navigate this pandemic, which has ravaged our way of life and prematurely taken the lives of so many, no matter what race, please acknowledge that burden is falling on your black colleagues disproportionately. And just know this one important thing, that they'll never show it. They've learned to navigate their worlds too well for that. And although we were told the degrees and the jobs and the accomplishments would somehow protect us from being treated like second-class citizens, although we were made to believe that working hard and contributing to society would mean society would treat us like human beings, we've learned the painful truth that unfortunately and painfully, that's a lie. On behalf of your black colleagues, just know this. We're not okay, and you shouldn't be either. And now, because I've traveled so much and done so much, I've experienced an awfully large amount of painful interactions with all manner of people, including colleagues, managers, subordinates, police officers, and even complete strangers. But one realization that I cannot deny or come fully to terms with is the fact that many of those interactions were influenced greatly by the color of my skin or how I was perceived because of it. The term preconception always grabs my awareness and makes me think about how many times I have walked into a room and felt the icy cold wind swirl through, where the woman grabs her purse quickly or the man looks me up and down as though he was searching for weapons. Nevertheless, I learned the game. I taught myself to speak well, to stay calm, to remain focused, to have thick skin, and to let it roll off. But honestly, that extra effort and the intense energy it took over so many years and so many instances may just kill me someday. So for now, I keep going. And you should too, whatever race you are. You should too. But just remember that some people's journey is a lot more difficult than some others. So here's a story that might just explain how challenging and complicated the whole journey can be sometimes. And while this is not meant to lean one way or another toward the race relations or police brutality question, but you decide what can be learned from this actual situation that I myself endured. End of part one. From this point forward, we will ask the question, what's going on? With respect for your time and interest, you may end your listening here. If my proposed story does not compel you to listen, I'll understand. However, if you're curious, stay tuned for part two of this week's episode entitled Chokehold, My Personal Growth Experience. It was May of the year, 1983. I was proud that I'd kept myself intact during the multi-layered ordeal of getting struck by a speeding tow truck while walking in a crosswalk. Some of you have heard this story before. Several months had passed, and the physical therapy had been very positive. I even gained a slight spring in my step. 
I could walk to and from my vehicle now without feeling crippled. This made me feel extremely happy. I would smile to myself as I celebrated life with every step. One early afternoon, I came home from PT and was smiling, just experiencing the joy of walking. I was about midway through the quiet apartment complex courtyard when I came upon a large, shirtless man standing by the pool. He and I were the only two people outside that day. I smiled, nodded, and greeted him as I walked by. How you doing? I said. We made direct eye contact. As I grew nearer to him, I realized that this guy was huge. He was a dark-haired Caucasian man with a proverbial penitentiary build. The man looked rock solid. He chose not to return my greeting and looked at me with piercing eyes. I had not seen him in the complex before. I imagined he was a new tenant. I walked on by and tried to make the tense exchange insignificant in my head. But I felt my senses lock and load. I somehow knew beyond a doubt this guy and I would have a problem. His spirit followed me into the house. Once inside, I let it go and went back to my bedroom. My mind was on other things. Several days later, I was sitting back in my room in the dark, listening to my own thoughts as I often do. The apartment was totally quiet. Suddenly, I heard a man's voice screaming from outside in the courtyard. His yelling was echoing through the property and almost shaking the walls, it was so loud. I shot up from the floor and walked quickly to the kitchen, leaned my ear forward and opened the front door. I see you up there. Come on out here, nigger. I'm going to kill you. What? I retorted indignantly to myself. In my heart and in my head, I immediately knew who he was. He was that guy I had passed in the courtyard several days earlier. I was certain of it. As if by some divine prophecy, I instinctively readied myself for a fight. I quietly made my way back to the room and put my nunchucks in my belt behind me. I never thought twice as I opened the door and walked casually toward the commotion. My physical and emotional defense mechanism was on automatic. I had not so much as thrown one kick since my accident, but whatever this force was that was leading me to do battle, it was stronger than I was. I strode confidently along the second floor balcony, balcony and down the stairs. I followed the sound. I could hear this man still yelling frantically. I came upon a crowd of people who looked frightened and nervous, and I looked over to the right and saw the man I expected to see. His arms were raised high above his head. One of the tenants, a tall, thin father of two, was plastered against the wall. He was terrified. The crazy man forbid him to move and was screaming at the top of his lungs. And what the fuck are you going to do, huh? Ah! He screamed. The thin man leaned forward and tried to walk away. Suddenly, this apparent madman strayed on the poor guy and slammed him forcefully into the wall. You could hear the thud as his back indented the textured surface. The tenant's wife was crying and screaming. Leave him alone! Stop it, please! She sobbed as she begged the wild man to stop, but to no avail. There were about 12 or 15 people out there, and nobody seemed to know what was going on. Then this shirtless mass of muscle and emotion started flailing his arms wildly and continued to scream. Arrgh! He and I made eye contact, eye contact and he started fast walking toward me. The frightened people's eyes followed him in my direction. We were all on the ground floor level and you could hear the voices echoing through the softly lit courtyard. 
I was dressed in jeans and a long john t-shirt. This maniac rushed toward me and I braced myself for war. I was standing about 10 feet from the set of stairs that led to the second floor balcony of another building. And this fool dashed right up the stairs and screamed like a madman when he got to the top again. Ah! Nigga! He yelled, I'll kill you, nigga! Suddenly, I saw this young, attractive Caucasian woman who was a familiar face on the property. She peeked her head out of the open door and ran toward, and he ran toward her. She was noticeably crying. You could hear her scream as she ducked back inside the apartment. I ran up the stairs and stood Wild West style at the end of the balcony. He noticed me and stopped short. He started screaming again, Nigger, I'll kill you! This man was about six feet one inches tall and a menacing-looking, crazy-eyed fool. I was certain we would have to throw down, but I tried to calm him. Man, why don't you calm down? It's not worth all this. Fuck you, nigga! I'll kill you! Man, look, you don't even know me, I warned sternly. Why don't you ease up? Like he was shot out of a cannon, he ran toward me from the 20-foot distance away, then stopped suddenly and went the other way. I locked. All right, man, be cool, I warned. What's the matter with you, I pleaded. Nigga, he yelled again. He put his hands on the wrought iron railing and shook his leg like he was trying to impress upon me that he knew some type of martial arts. Then I got seriously concerned. I'm going to really have to hurt this fool now, I thought. My eyes widened slightly. No more talking, I said in my mind. I was trying to defuse this thing, but this guy was nuts. He started fast walking toward me again. He walked right past and started down the stairs. Come on, nigga! Me and you! He shouted. I took a step toward him and thought, what am I doing? I'm not going to follow this guy. Nah, man, why don't you be cool? I pleaded. I could see the crowd flinch as he headed down the stairs. When this man walked past me, I noticed that the look in his eyes was not normal. He looked totally spaced out. He ran back up the stairs and toward the open door again and stopped. He looked at me with a confused look. Apparently, he had decided because he took several steps toward me and drew back his fist bolo style to punch me. In an instant, I leaned forward and misdirected his punch and hit him with a powerful ridge hand strike. His eyes rolled in his head and he dropped to his knees. I took a half step backward to let him fall and he reached up as if entranced and grabbed my shirt. The last thing I wanted was to grapple with this crazy man. I knew my body was still questionable from the accident. I let out a piercing yell and hook punched him again near his chin. This guy was out cold. His body went totally limp. His face was bleeding and his eyes were closed. But he still had my shirt. He was on his knees and knocked out, but his hand had a death grip on my quilted Long John shirt. I didn't know quite what to make of it. I felt like this fool was the devil himself. Man, I started hitting this guy with everything but the kitchen sink. I would hit him so hard his body would slide from one direction to the next. I buried my knee in his chest and he literally lifted off the balcony floor, but he wouldn't let go. I must have hit him 50 times. Each time his body would go every which way, but he still had that shirt. You could probably hear me yell a mile away. Ah! Ah! Just then, the police came charging in from the rear of the complex. You could hear their belts jangling as four cops ran past the crowd and up the stairs. I felt an instant sense of relief. They all came running towards us about a third of the way down the corridor. My back was toward them, and I purposely went limp. I had decided to let them have this guy. I was certain he was either high off PCP or the devil incarnate. 
I offered no resistance and put my hands out to my sides. Suddenly, I felt myself being lifted into the air by my neck. These three of these cops grabbed me, and I moved casually over toward my opponent. They pulled me away, and the section of my shirt that the fool was holding stayed right with them. They all pulled me and ripped the front portion of my shirt right off. The crazy antagonist fell and still had the fragment of my shirt in his hand. Now I had one cop holding my body in a bear hug. One was making aggressive attempts to handcuff me, and the other, who towered over all of us, was choking me with his nightstick like he surely wanted to murder me. Both his elbows were pointing high in the air like an eagle, and I could hear his grunts and strained breathing behind me. In the meantime, one of the boys in blue went casually over to attend to the wild man who was lying limp on the balcony. Now all the bystanders were screaming in unison, he's not the one, he's not the one, you've got the wrong one. My eyes made roving contact with the crowd and I could hear them scream, you're killing him, stop, you're killing him. Almost as quickly as he went to sleep, the crazy man came too. In an instant, he and the lone cop were tussling on the cement floor. He's got my gun, I could hear the frightened cop yell. Now this thing has turned into a dogfight. Imagine three cops wrestling with one guy. They were kicking, pulling, poking, and doing whatever they could to get him under control. In the meantime, this other cop has me hoisted in the air, choking the mess out of me. The crowd was still screaming, you're killing him, stop! I felt myself drifting away. I was literally being choked to death. My mind was racing. Do I resist and try to dump this huge officer to get him off of me? Do I hold the line and wait? Oh shit, I thought, what can I do? I was losing consciousness. Then my nunchucks fell from my belt and the frantic frantic cop choked me even harder. I was handcuffed and subdued. Suddenly I thought of wrestling and a technique called a cross face. I knew that I needed to take the pressure of the nightstick off of my windpipe. The counter technique for the cross face was to turn your head as far as you possibly could away from the pressure. So I flexed my neck and turned my head as far to the right as I could. That idea bought me some time. I still wasn't totally out of trouble, but at least I wouldn't pass out. Finally, the other cops subdued the perpetrator and two of them started to force his bloody battered body down the stairs. The cop who had me in the chokehold was wild eyed and obviously his adrenaline was flying. He simply let go and joined two of the three cops in manhandling this crazy guy into custody. This sergeant, who could have easily taken my life, never even looked back at me. One officer, the politician of the group, stayed behind to clean up the potential mess. The crowd continued yelling their displeasure with the obvious case of brutality against me. The tension was thicker than a cheap steak and equally as hard to cut through, as this fast-talking cop quickly started removing my handcuffs. You okay? He asked with synthetic sincerity. Man, look, I said angrily, I'm not the one who started this thing, you know. What in the hell are you guys choking me for? I barked. I'm sorry, he stuttered, but but the sergeant gets carried away sometimes. I'm sorry, he repeated. Then he reached down to grab my nunchucks that were lying on the balcony floor. Hey, what'd you need these for? He whined while pointing at the nunchucks. You could have taken care of the guy without these, he commented. Hey, I didn't know what I would run into when I came out here. He insulted me and forced me to believe that he was dangerous to me. Please give me my nunchucks back, I requested with quiet cynicism. Hey, these are illegal, you know, he reminded me as he pulled the sticks toward him. Look, my case is in the house, I insisted. I'm a martial arts instructor. I'm allowed to have these, I demanded. Okay, he said in a quiet tone. The subject changed quickly. Hey, listen, you're not thinking of filing charges or anything, are you? He asked pleadingly. 
The Sarge gets carried away, he repeated again. You don't want to start any trouble, do you? He continued to whine. He was trying to maintain his cool. At that time, Los Angeles was the subject of a national campaign to do away with the chokehold. The Los Angeles police had recently murdered an up-and-coming African-American actor who was described as a passive man. The current chief of police at the time, Darrell Gates, has gone on national television. He made the comment that, unlike normal people, blacks needed to be restrained by a chokehold. In his estimation, the risk of deadly force was justified. There was a resounding public outcry. The public demanded his resignation. This included the NAACP and other civil rights organizations. On that night, his fate was still pending. In addition, Los Angeles had recently paid substantial sums of money and damages to the families of victims of wrongful death caused by deadly force. This particular officer knew that this was extremely poor timing for a brut brutality suit to emerge. At that time, I was uncertain as to what I wanted to do. My neck was hurting and I just wanted out of that place. What a crazy nightmare. The cop said as much as he could reasonably say. He descended the stairs and disappeared. There we all were, standing there with a hole in our lives. A little lo less flexibility in my neck and I would be dead. All I could think was, for what? I felt terrible. I could have avoided it. I could have stayed in the house. I could have done anything other than compromise myself for that fool. The crowd finally broke up and I went inside. On the way in, some of my neighbors offered thanks and expressed their sympathy for what had occurred. I was indifferent now. I just wanted to rest my tangled emotions and sort it out. I felt so strange. I had learned so much about myself over the months and I had felt a new sense of direction, but I was bent out of shape about this one. I had to step back from it all. I realized I needed to regroup so that I wouldn't risk falling into the same emotional traps that I had encountered earlier in my life. It was my responsibility to maintain control. Certainly, it was equally as important as protecting myself. But there was a thin line between trying to protect myself and trying to prove something to myself. I might have stepped over it. The next day, got off to a slow start. My neck was tender and sore, but I would not let anything deter me from my recuperative goal. I was quite curious as to what became of the wild man from the night before. I had pretty much canceled out the idea of trying to pursue a lawsuit against the police department. I was extremely tired of conflict, and I didn't find that a very fulfilling way to make money. That afternoon, though, my concern about whether I would have to fight again got the best of me. I called the police station for an update. I wondered if the crazy races had been released. I remembered the officer's name and badge number. I used that as a reference and inquired about the man they arrested. Coincidentally, the officer was at the station when I called. I expressed concern over whether I would have to have another encounter with that guy. If he was bailed out, I needed to know. The policeman chuckled and assured me that I shouldn't concern myself. He proceeded to offer the explanation for this man's weird behavior. The first thing he did was apologize for him and his fellow cops' actions toward me. I accepted and we quickly moved on. It seems the first complaint they received was from the convenience store next door. The man had thrown a garbage can through their window and shattered it. He walked away, screaming. Then several of the tenants had called to complain. Well, didn't they give you a description? I interrupted sarcastically. Yes, they did. I'm sorry. Again, he apologized. He went on to tell me how this guy had just gotten out of prison. 
Yesterday, several days after his release, his mother died. He took it pretty hard, the officer concluded. The policeman also informed me that he was visiting the young, attractive lady who kept popping her head in and out of the door last night. She was the first tenant who called the police. She says he just snapped. So you won't have to worry about him for a long time, the cop chuckled. He'll be in for quite a while. The police officer and I ended our conversation and I felt a relative sense of relief. At least my tolerance wouldn't have to be tested again by a stranger. Fast forward to healing my body, standing the test of time, and moving to another apartment complex, and starting a new job as athletic director and karate instructor at a local health club. Things were moving my way. After getting all moved into my new place, I continued working at the club. It was an amazing step forward, and I was feeling like I had made excellent progress. My physical stamina and appearance continued to improve. I was now in fantastic physical shape. All day, every day, I continued my physical comeback. Though any day that I was away from my activities I tried to do without a workout, my lower back burned like fire. I reasoned that for the rest of my life, I would have to stay in as near peak condition as possible. My injuries had left what appeared to be a permanent damage to my spine. My back always ached, but without constant movement, the discomfort was substantial. It was still May of the year, 1983. Friday was my scheduled day off. The day of the week was Saturday. I came into work that morning and went directly to the weight room as I did every day, downstairs. I would straighten the room, put the weights in their proper places, and prepare for the bustling crowds of people that would surely be using the facilities. I looked at the sturdy Olympic bench and noticed that the bar was stacked with several hundred pounds of free weight. I realized that someone had been hitting the iron pretty hard. Whoever was benching the night before was strong. I continued my Saturday morning routine and prepared for the kids' karate class that would take place shortly. I left the weight room and went into the locker room to change into my karate gi. I changed quickly and made my way upstairs to the all-glass room where the classes were held. As I waited for my enthusiastic young students to arrive, I said a smiling hello to one of the employees, Kathleen, as she walked by. Hi, Roger, she greeted with a bright smile. You know, there was a guy in here yesterday trying to take your job, she said with that same big smile on her face. Oh, yeah, I replied. What do you mean? Well, she said, her facial expression changed quickly. There was this big guy in here yesterday. As a matter of fact, she continued, he was kind of weird. I began to listen attentively. He came in and almost demanded a job as, as our weightlifting coach, she said. We told him we already had an athletic director and that we didn't need anyone else. He looked like he was kind of pissed, she added. Then he stormed downstairs and started lifting weights. Kathy smiled and ended her story. I smiled too and we both kind of shrugged, as if to say, well, tough luck. The kids started filing in and the club's pace of activity began to quicken. In short order, the kids were dressed and bowing in one by one as they entered the small impromptu dojo. As always, we began our classes with a substantial warm-up. It was a packed class that day, and the kids were responding well, as usual. We got about three-quarters of the way through the class, and I was barking instructions to my enthusiastic brood, when suddenly I noticed a large Caucasian man stomp by the glass room and dash downwards, downstairs in the direction of the weight room. My eyes grew large, and I stopped speaking suddenly. I could hardly believe my eyes. 
it was the guy I had the confrontation with in the courtyard of the apartments where I previously lived. Suddenly, that cop's chokehold and all the mess that preceded popped into my head. Oh, shit, I thought. Not again. This guy was supposed to be in prison. I knew it was no accident that he was at my job. I was certain that he had come there for payback. Suddenly, I was shaken out of my frozen trance. Sensei, are you all right? One of the cerebric students asked with a puzzled look on her face. The kids were all frozen in place. I shook my head and quickly ended the class. They were not quite sure what to make of it, but I was preparing to do battle. I knew there was no coincidence. If this guy had a prison mentality, I knew he would not be satisfied with the beating I laid on him several months before. He was apparently ready to try me again. I didn't know that I could walk away from this one as easily as I did the last one. Plus, this was my job. I didn't want any trouble there. The least I could do was deal with it somewhere else. My mind was racing. I made my way down the stairs and walked toward the weight room. As I approached the room, I noticed a large crowd of members had gathered outside the room and were watching in awe. This large man was literally putting on a weightlifting exhibition. I looked through the crowd and saw the man clearly. It was him all right. He was stacking the bar with all the weight we had, and he was lifting like he was possessed. I quickly went into the locker room to change out of my karate uniform. As fast as I could, I put on my sweats. I needed to fix this potential disaster as soon as possible. I asked myself, should I jam this guy up in here or should I try to do it outside? The only reasonable thing I thought was to take this war outside. Then I thought, this guy didn't come here empty handed. I better get some firepower. I called my friend in Compton and told him I would need one of his guns. I schooled him on what was happening and he agreed to help me out. As soon as I got dressed, I immediately left the club. When I walked outside and down the large set of stairs, I noticed a shady looking character just standing outside waiting. He looked at me with a fierce look on his face and I knew that he was the partner of the guy inside. That was all I needed to see. I made up my mind, these fools ain't taking my life. Without telling anybody, I left the club and went immediately to a telephone to call Kathy. I told her that I would be back soon, but to stay away from the guy in the weight room. He and I had previous problems, and I think there might be trouble, I said. Just don't say anything to him and don't provoke him. Just let him do what he wants. I'll be back soon, I punctuated. Sure enough, I went to my friend Gary's house and called the club again. Apparently, the madman had left. I figured I could relax for now, but the next time he came back, I would be ready. Whether I wanted it or not, I was preparing to defend myself. I'd already seen this guy's potential. I tried to play the whole thing down with Kathy, and I asked her not to mention it to anyone. She agreed, and I was preparing for the coming week. Whatever happens, I thought, I'm not letting nobody take me out. Sunday went by without incident. That Monday, as I always did, I went to the apartments where I'd lived to pick up my mail. I declined forwarding my mail to avoid complications with the attorney and the insurance company. As I remember, the mailboxes were outside the complex in a ceilingless, open, four-foot-by-four-foot four foot foyer type entry to the development. As I was accustomed, I reached inside the mailbox and grabbed the stack of envelopes. Suddenly, I heard the large, milled, wooden door that led to the courtyard of the complex opening. I looked up quickly, and who did I see but the crazy man that I had been preparing for? Perfect, I thought, instantly. Let's just get it over with now. My body locked and I prepared myself for what was certain to be a fight to the death. The familiar man and I made simultaneous eye contact. I looked at him with burning eyes. Suddenly the silence was broken. 
How you doing? The large, muscular, crazy-looking man said with a big smile. He walked right past me and out the large outer door on into the street. I stood there, stunned. I felt like a complete fool. Here I was, ready to kill this man, and he wasn't thinking about me. I'm sure he had to recognize me. I stood there for several more seconds and shook my head. Roger, you gotta cool out, I said to myself. I decided then and there that I would spend the rest of my days doing everything I could to avoid violent situations. I realized that my fight or flight instincts had been honed to the point that I wouldn't have to react so quickly. I knew that my protective systems would warn me when I really needed to worry. In the meantime, I needed to relax. I had just learned a tremendous lesson. The rest of that afternoon and evening, I thought a lot about the days of why so many brothers wind up going off on somebody, especially their own. How does one change a lifetime of conditioning? How, after you spend day after day fighting for everything, do you suddenly become peaceful? Unfortunately, it's not so simple. It doesn't quite work that way. I realized that a volatile and violent nature needs a little kindness and care to change, which is why prisons only perpetuate a man's problem, as do argumentative and oppressive relationships. Every time one feels aggression or antagonism, it triggers that mechanism, which is mostly defense transformed into offense. Fear, hurt, and pain switched instantly to anger are the emotions behind most of the violence that brothers perpetuate. I swore that I would get a grip. If I didn't, I knew I would never make it. It was a weird realization I'd come to. However, unlike some, it had not turned to apathy. Ironically, I was more motivated than ever. I could learn to be cool, but I refused to be broken. I went back to the health club the following day and picked up where I left off, but I had grown just a little bit more. I had knocked off another of the demons that plague so many underprivileged people. There is so much complexity in this story. Policemen doing their jobs, citizens interacting with each other, and the solitary challenge of one young man trying to find himself in the dark. And while this is simply one story of many, those events help bring me to my here and now. So my word to the wise is... Always have a plan. Stay focused. Keep your eyes on. Deal with each situation accordingly. And don't fall for the okey-doke. And while perfection in this life may not be possible, excellence truly is. Find your excellence. Make your plan. Build your team. Thank you for joining us again today for another episode of round 12. May you live as long as you want and never want as long as you live. May the worst days of your future be like the best days of your past. And may you continue to answer life's bell every time. Until we meet again, time!